Good morning. Today I'm reading from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 from the uh, New Living Translation. Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, Why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. Then I was terrified, but I replied, Long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, Well, how can I help you? With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, If it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, Send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. I also said to the king, If it pleases the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted me these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. When I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. Thanks be to God for his word. This is always a a good thing to do, just to kind of pause and just see where everybody's sitting. And so that if I need to pick some of you out, I know exactly where you're sitting. I'm just teasing. Um, you know, it's been an interesting couple weeks for some of you. Um, I know Nalia just left, Nalia John. Didn't she win her soccer team won provincials last weekend, right? Did I see that? And Anna Lemke's team won provincials last weekend. Um, Colleen coached uh, the Metal Art Christian School girls basketball team to a silver medal in t- uh, Tier 1 and for a small little school of... What, about 100 junior high students? Um, it's pretty incredible. Um, some of you may know the, uh, Nathan and Patty Kern, their oldest son, Jacob. He is a second-year student at Trinity Western University in Langley, B.C. And they were actually national champions in volleyball this year. So I'm sure there's uh, a lot of other things that you're experiencing, some uh, joy uh, in as you coach your kids and cheer them on and whatever uh, else um, they might be involved in. Well, since about mid-February, we've been in a series of messages that we simply called Against All Odds, Pursuing God-Sized Goals. And it's been a very fitting series for us at TCC because we have clearly have sensed that God is calling us as a relatively young church to start another church. And that in itself is a God-sized goal for sure. To trust God that what he has done here at TCC over the last 14 years, that he will do it again at Southwest Community Church. 
And as I approached this Sunday, I was kind of thinking it's sort of an in-between Sunday in some ways, kind of a little odd one in the sense that last week we had this beautiful and powerful commissioning service for those at, uh, from TCCU who have felt the call of God to be part of this new church plant. And then next Sunday is going to be the first service at, uh, at Southwest over at Dr. Margaret Annamore School in Ambleside. But what is also exciting is what is happening right here at TCC next Sunday. And we will be introducing you to a potential new associate pastor. His name's Adam Beyer. That, uh, and if he's called here, he will really help uh, strengthen and develop the ministry right here at TCC. So we're excited about that. So it's the in-between. Commissioning, start, but here we are today. And as we've been studying the lives of some Old Testament characters, because so many of them have faced overwhelming odds um, when they have been specifically called to do something of God. Uh, Pastor Ken has introduced us to some relatively obscure characters uh, through this series, like Eleazar and Shammah. But today I'd like to get to know some, I'd like us to get to know someone that may be a little bit uh, more well-known, a guy by the name of Nehemiah. Now, at the very least, we know that there might know that there's an Old Testament book about him. And, um, and so I invite you to turn there to Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2 will be there. Maybe you have it on your smartphone and you'll want to follow along. But before we get to know him a little bit, I think it'll be helpful to understand a little bit of the backstory. You know, when and where do these events take place? Why do they take place? What's, what's so important about that? So I want to start by just giving you a little bit of ancient history. Now, for those of you who hate history of any sort, this might be a little bit of a painful experience to you. But trust me, some people find history absolutely fascinating. Probably the person sitting next to you, they're going to just really dig this. So just bear with me as we jump in and pick up the history of the Israelites with David. That's right, the little shepherd boy who took Goliath out with a sling and a stone, and Samuel anointed David king. And the history of the people of God under David's leadership is that the nation of Israel flourishes. And David was a leader who was described as a man after God's own heart. And yet, he had his own personal struggles with sin. But in spite of that, God blesses David's kingdom. And at the end of his 40-year reign, 40 years he was in power, the nation of Israel is strong financially and powerful militarily. And then David passes the keys of the kingdom to his son Solomon. And listen to the counsel he gives to his son, 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. He says, I am going where everyone on earth must someday go. Um, he's not talking about Disneyland. He's not talking about Vegas. He's about to die, right? And so it's just a quick reminder of our mortal mortality. He says, I'm going where everyone on earth is someday going to go. But because these are his last words, they're significant. And this is what he says to his son. Listen, take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep the decrees, commands, regulations, and laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all you do and wherever you go. And Solomon starts off really well. And you might remember that he was known as a wise guy, a sharp guy. And when God asked him what he would like, he was smart enough to ask for wisdom rather than stuff. And so Solomon steps in. He takes over this unbelievable empire from his father, David. But Solomon really was the original guy who had it all. 
And 1 Kings 10.23 informs us that King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. In other words, nobody had more stuff than Solomon, and he was incredibly wise. But sometimes, as you probably know, even wise people do really dumb things. And the opening verse of 1 Kings chapter 11 informs us that King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. His wife is Pharaoh's daughter. She's not named. She's only described as Pharaoh's daughter, whom he married back in 1 Kings chapter 3. And I won't go into all the historical details, of, but, but, but God basically, basically said, you aren't to love foreign women. And God had a reason for that. He always does. His purpose was because of the covenant that he made way back with Abraham. It was essential that they didn't intermarry with foreign women because if they did, it would dilute the line through which the very Messiah himself would come. And so understandably, God took it very seriously when they disobeyed this clear instruction. When it said, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. And that's exactly what happened to Solomon. Solomon willfully disobeyed the counsel of his father and the clear command of God. And in verse 3 of 1 Kings chapter 11, it says that he had 700 wives of royal birth. And if 700 weren't enough, he had 300 concubines. And his wives, plural, led him astray. I mean, they really messed him up. And in verse 4, it's a great summary. His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. In other words, he started to worship the goddesses of the wives that he married. And then after Solomon died, this incredible empire that had been built up under God, under the leadership of his father David, was then divided. And so this kingdom is now divided. And there were 12 tribes. Ten of them went to the north. They settled in Samaria, and they were called Israel. Two of them went south. They settled in Jerusalem, and they were called Judah. And it was just civil war. People were fighting among themselves. And God sent prophets into them, trying to call his people back to himself. But they didn't listen. And in 722 BC, God had the Assyrians invade the northern, northern kingdom, and the ten tribes were completely decimated. And then in 586 BC, the same fate happens to the south as the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar invade Jerusalem. And this event in history is recorded in 2 Chronicles 36.19. It says this, They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. And that's going to make sense to you why that's important in just a few minutes. Now, those that weren't killed during this invasion, they were then led as captives 800 miles away to Babylon. And so here they are, enslaved again, chained, broken, defeated. And all they could do was sing songs of lament. Psalm 137.1, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And Pastor Ken had a when we did our prayer series back in January, I had a message on the prayers of lament, and we looked at that verse. But there is hope, because this situation didn't last forever. 
Because then in 539 BC, the Babylonians got routed by the Medo-Persian Empire. And this marks a significant turning point for the people of God. Because God's plan and purpose was this, that in setting up a new king, he was going to provide a way for his people to ultimately return home to Jerusalem. And so one of the first things that Cyrus, king of Persia, does is respond, uh, is really in response to the Lord moving in his heart. And so he makes this great proclamation. And this is what he says at the end of Second Chronicles chapter 36 and verse 23. He says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go there for this task. He's giving them permission to return, to go and rebuild the temple. And then he says, and may the Lord your God be with you. And so then there are several waves of returnees to Jerusalem over the next 80 to 90 years. And you can read this part of history in the book of Ezra. And as they return, the temple is rebuilt. And then in 446 B.C., we're introduced to Nehemiah. And in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, verse 1, we're introduced for the first time to this Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. He is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. He has no pedigree. He is not from royalty. He's not from any important family. He is just simply an ordinary guy. And just in case we miss this, let me remind us right up front that God always seems to choose to use ordinary people. People like you and people like me. We are totally useful to God only and simply because He calls us, He redeems us, He puts His Spirit inside of us, and He gives us then a desire to serve Him. And that's why each of us is useful to God. Now the Bible says that it's the month of Kislev, which is probably around late November, maybe early December. Some translations actually say uh, in the autumn, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. So 446 B.C., as I said. And he specifically states that he was at the fortress of Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire at the time. It's at least 800 miles from Jerusalem. And at the very end of chapter 1, he introduces himself as cupbearer to the king. That's right. He carried cups. This is not, I, this was not like a symbol or an object lesson or anything as I reached for my cup of water. I just needed something to drink. I just thought the timing of that was uncanny. But, so he carried cups for the king. I mean, he didn't just carry the cups. He drank what was in the cups and he ate what was on the plates. And he went wherever the king went. And when someone offered the king a drink, guess what would happen? Nehemiah would first step in and take the first sip. Because you know what's going on, right? If there's poison in the drink, so long Nehemiah, long live the king. This is what he did for a living. I mean, really, when you think about it, it's the perfect job for someone who likes taking risks, but also likes food and good wine. So who do we have? We have Nehemiah, just an ordinary guy. When was this? It's probably November 446 B.C. 
He's in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. He was cupbearer to the king. And why is this all important? To simply say this, because God had strategically placed him in a position to influence the godless king. And Nehemiah's brother comes and visits him and tells him that the wall around Jerusalem is still lying in ruins, 140 years after the uh, destruction in the first place. The wall is still a complete mess. But it wasn't so much the state of the wall. It was really that the wall was reflective of the spiritual condition of God's people. And his brother had reported this. He says, Things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us. But Nehemiah had a response to this. So what did Nehemiah do? Uh, Hearing this and knowing this, it it was a heavy burden for Nehemiah. The text says that when he heard these things, he sat down and wept. He had this emotional reaction to the news that his brother had brought him. But I believe that it was at this moment that God placed a dream in his mind, that God set a great vision before him, that even against all odds, he heard the whisper of God to return to Jerusalem to lead the people in the rebuilding of the wall. But how would this ever happen? I was cupbearer to the king. I couldn't just leave. I couldn't just walk away. I had responsibilities. I had a job. And so he did what we should always do when we don't know what to do next. When we don't know what the next thing is. What do we do? He fasted and he prayed. And those two go together. He, he set aside the normal intake of food and the routine attached to it of making it and enjoying it and all of that for the express purpose of using that time to seek God. This was and continues to be a, a spiritual discipline to practice. But this couldn't have been easy for a guy who actually made his living testing the food and drink of the king. And it says that he prayed to the God of heaven. I mean, Nehemiah knew that if this city would ever rise again, if the walls were ever going to be rebuilt, it would only be the result of God's leading and guiding. Nehemiah knew that on his own, he could do absolutely nothing. Only God would be able to. And the prayer in chapter 1 is a fantastic prayer. Be worth studying someday. But one of the things that I can say that he prays for specifically is for favor with his boss, the king. He prays this. He says, please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. And I wonder how many times he had to pray that prayer. Because the text says that he he prayed for some days. And then when we pick up the account in chapter 2, at least four months have passed. It's now the spring of 445 BC, probably around April. 
It's probably been at least 120 days of fasting and praying. And, okay, spoiler alert, if you look ahead to chapter 6 and verse 15, you'll discover that in fact the wall was rebuilt and it was completed in 52 days. I don't know about you, but I kind of find that significant that he spent twice as much time praying than actually doing the work. Isn't it amazing to think that when God gives you a God-sized dream and we humbly accept that dream while knowing that it is so far beyond us that he then gives us the very things we need to achieve him, them. Bottom line is that God answers prayer. And God answers Nehemiah's prayer. And chapter 2 is really an account of how God answered his prayer of chapter 1. And so I want to walk through these 10 verses that Barry has read for us. So that was, that was all introduction. That was like kind of bonus material. Now we're going to dive into, into the text itself. But we're just going to walk through these 10 verses, do a little excavating, and see what some of the truths are that we can, we can discover this morning. Nehemiah tells us that he was serving the king his wine. And so he already had a drink of it. He's still alive, and so the king can have the rest. This was part of their regular routine. But on this day, something was different. For the first time, it says that Nehemiah was sad in the presence of the king. Now, surprisingly, or not surprisingly, excuse me, the king notices, and so he asks, why are you looking so sad, Nehemiah? I mean, this would be important for him to know. Think of the context, right? If suddenly Nehemiah is looking a little sick, the king better stop drinking the wine himself. You never know what's in it. But the king then adds, but you don't look sick. You must be deeply troubled. He could see it in his face. Nehemiah is honest enough to then say, I was terrified. The fact that he was afraid reveals his, his humanity. And like I said earlier, he was just an ordinary guy. Now, he wasn't afraid because the king asked him this question, why are you sad? But because he now knew that this was the very opportunity that he had been praying for for months. And here it is. He's about to jump in. And I love the fact that Nehemiah is honest enough with how he feels but then he responds anyway. It goes, I was terrified, but, <laughs> it's a big but, right? I replied. Now it's been said that bravery, in fact, is not the absence of fear, but rather the willingness to act in spite of fear. And I'm sure when we talk about brave men and women in uniform, whether it be police or fire or military, they often find themselves in scary situations. But they act anyway. And so verse 3, Nehemiah tells the king the reason for his sadness. And he just simply says, well, how can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the, the gates have been destroyed by fire. See why the little history review is important? I love the king's response. Well, how can I help you? Or as the NIV translate it, 
What is it you want? What a great open-ended question. He's been praying for favor. And here it is. What is it you want? Now watch what happens. Nehemiah says a little bullet prayer. Okay, He says, oh God, here we go. Please help me. But it wasn't the only prayer, right? Keep in mind that he'd been praying for this for months and fasting. Send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And there's this little exchange that then takes place between Nehemiah and the king. He says, well, how long will you be gone? When are you going to return? I mean, if you're going to ask for a leave of absence, your boss has every right to know how long you're going to be gone for. In fact, it's really a good thing when they ask you how long you're going to be good for. Because if the response is like, well, six months, 12 months, how much time do you need? Like forever? But he wants to know because he wants them back. He was loyal. He did his job well. And so Nehemiah tells him how long he will be gone and the the king agrees to this request. Friends, this is the answer to prayer. He prayed that he would find favor with the king and he prayed that God would move in the heart uh, of the king to be kind towards Nehemiah. And how kind was he? Let's carry on. This is where it gets really good. Nehemiah has also some very practical needs. And so clearly, he had been praying, as I've already said, but he was also planning. He knew exactly what he needed to get back to Jerusalem and what he needed to rebuild the wall around the city. And so he says, well, can I have some letters for safe travel? It's a dangerous journey, those 800 miles. Can I get a letter for, or a letter for some supplies? That's verse 8. And he outlines, he goes, I'm going to need wood to, to make the beams for the gates into the city wall. I'm going to need some, some timber for the wall itself. And oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to need enough wood to build a house for myself. Do we think that he just quickly thought about those things and just off the cuff rattled them off? No, absolutely not. God had placed this dream in his mind. As he prayed for the fulfillment of that dream, he continued to plan. He knew exactly what he needed so that when the king said, what is it you want? He knew what the answer was. And not only did the king grant these requests, as an added bonus, verse 9, he sends along an armed escort to provide protection for Nehemiah on his journey back to Jerusalem. Isn't, isn't that just like God? You ask for this and he gives you that much more? Friends, we serve a great and awesome and powerful God who is living and active in our world and in our lives. Now, the burning question is why did all of this happen? Because why did the king then grant Nehemiah all of his requests and then some? You know, did the king like him? He was a good worker. They were good friends. They spent a lot of time together. They shared many meals together. Or was it just because Nehemiah was so positive that the the king couldn't help but give him what he wanted? used all the right words because Nehemiah knew what he wanted? The answer to the why question comes clearly in verse 8. Because the gracious hand of God was on me. Nehemiah didn't take any credit for himself. 
He did the praying, and he did the planning, but he knew that it was only because of the gracious hand of God that was on him. Only God. And from this point on, you'd think everything went perfectly according to plan. Well, not exactly, because verse 10 tells us that there were these two characters, Sanballat and Tobiah. They were not very pleased that Nehemiah had come to help the people of Israel to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And these characters, if you continue and read um, the rest of the story, and I'm going to leave that to you. If you want something to do this afternoon, you know, read Nehemiah or read Ezra and see the history unfold and then how this, how this all takes place in that context. But these guys continue to make life difficult for Nehemiah because Sanballat was actually the governor of Samaria And Nehemiah was a threat to him. But enough about that for now. Don't you love this guy, Nehemiah? I love how he is so burdened for his people. He so clearly saw the need, and then he decides to personally get involved with meeting that need. He starts by doing the only thing he knew that he could do first. That was to fast and pray and take the need to God. And he was prepared to give up the comfort of the only home he knew, the job he had, risk his life, face opposition, all because he knew that is what God was calling him to do. And he was totally prepared to go against all odds to pursue this God-sized vision that God had given him. So what can we learn from Nehemiah? Let me give you five truths to take home this morning. Number one, God is sovereign. Full stop. That is, he is in control of all things. Let's never, ever, ever forget that. He sets up kings, he brings down kings. And often it makes absolutely no sense to us. But he has a plan and a purpose for this world, and he's working it out. And add to this that he is good, and he is faithful, and he keeps his promises. And so the question simply is, is can we just trust and obey him in the process? Whatever you're going through right now, you need to know that he knows fully, and he cares, and he loves you. He has not abandoned you, but there is nothing that you and I can do nothing of lasting significance if the gracious hand of God isn't on us. And that's what we have to pray for. And secondly, I want to say that prayer is vital in the pursuit of any God-given plans. Only God can change a person's heart. Only God can open and close doors. Only God can provide in response to our big asks. Nehemiah prayed for favor with the king, and God answered that prayer. He very likely expanded that prayer to then include practical needs like safe travel and building materials, because as he was planning, his prayer list grew, and God provided those for those as well. Friends, God does move when God's people pray. And that's why we gathered last week as a church at the prayer summit to pray, and it's something that we're going to continue to do on a regular basis. The truth of the matter is that that we can do a lot more after we've prayed, but we really can't do much until we've prayed. And so we're trusting God right now. One of the things that we prayed about last week is for additional staff right here at TCC. As I already mentioned, Adam's going to be here next week. We're considering him for for a new associate pastor role. We're hoping to hire a a part-time director of community life later this spring. The search team is is very active for for a pastor of student ministries right now. 
and pray for them. And pray that God leads us to all of the right people for all of these positions. The third truth we can take home is this, is that while we wait in prayer, we should also be planning. Praying and planning, as I've said, go hand in hand. Because if someone asks us, what is it you want, we need to be prepared, as Nehemiah was, with an answer. Right? I mean, if you're looking for a job, you can't just sit back and wait for the phone to ring. You can trust that God will provide the right and perfect job for you, but if you never submit the resume, attend the interview, you're likely still going to be sitting at home. And you think that's silly, but I've had those conversations with people where they're like, I'm, I'm just waiting for the next thing and I'm praying about it. Great, well, what are you doing about it? Right? Pray and plan. And so we can plan and organize while we wait. And then when God moves, we can go for it because we know that he has answered our prayers. Fourth truth, in God's great plans and purposes, there is something for each of us to do. Okay? God had put a special burden and calling and vision on Nehemiah's life. But I can also cheat on this a little one, on, on this one a little, because it really comes from no, knowing the rest of the story of, of Nehemiah. Because I had already mentioned to you that the wall was completed in 52 days. That happened under Nehemiah's leadership. Nehemiah didn't, even though he was actively involved, he didn't just do it by himself. Because it happened because God's people got involved and they did their part. And, and, and the rest of Nehemiah is this wonderful story of Nehemiah giving leadership to the people and giving direction. And they all put their, their shoulder to the plow, so to speak. And this wall just magically appears because they worked. They worked hard. And so if you put some of these truths together, do you believe that God in all of his plans and his purposes has put you in this place for this time, for this day, that there's something that you are able to do that no one else is able to do because God has planned it for you? What I mean by that is to say this, that next week, some of you are going to be attending the very first service at Southwest Community Church. And as we commissioned you last week, we bless you, we encourage you, we cheer you on, we send you out. And if you are one of those going, you need to know right up front that God has something very unique for you to do there. But you know what that means for the rest of us who are staying here at TCC? Some of these people that are going are stepping out of roles here. And that means that some of you then need to step in whether it's in worship or some of the technical stuff or brunch or ushering or greeting or setup or children's ministry, especially children's ministry, there will be holes to fill. And so the question is, is will you step up and do your part? Because in God's plans and purposes, there's something for each of us to do. And lastly, and I won't spend much time on this because this is the one negative one, when you pursue God-given visions, you can expect opposition. I wish it wasn't so, but I think the reality is that anytime we are walking by faith, we will encounter opposition from those who walk by sight, and it's something that we can count on. Now, in closing, I want to quote from one of Pastor Ken's weekly emails. I didn't ask him for permission for this, but he just gave it to me. Good. Um, It was on September 18th, 2014, so now I'm doing a little bit of modern history. And the context is is that he was reporting in his weekly email about a day that the elders had spent together just 
praying and thinking and dreaming. And this is what he wrote to the congregation. So this is already public and it's out there. He said, our task, that was the elder team, was to prayerfully consider where God is taking us in the days ahead. We spent considerable time tracing the hand of God upon this ministry since it began 11 years ago. We were aware again of his favor and blessing and incredible timeliness for every crucial decision. We also saw how God has brought us to a new chapter. His blessing on the past is faith-building for us and gratitude-producing. We feel so thankful, so all we can say is, Lord, wherever you want to take us as we move forward, we are willing to go. Two and a half years ago. And that was the start of an incredible journey where we have trusted in the sovereign plans and purposes of God We have prayed for clear direction. We have planned and then we even explored some steps and some options, some of which we pursued and others that we're able to let go of or step back from. We've made adjustment to some of the roles at staff. We've figured out what additional staff we might need. And it's been a two and a half year process. And again, we come to the point where we can say, only God. And thank you, God. And yes, God. We are willing to go wherever you lead us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are just reminded today again of what an incredible God you are. What an awesome God you are. Father, we don't often, we probably don't often enough take the time to just stop and think back over our own lives, yet alone the life of the church or a country or a nation or the world or ancient history as a whole. But God, you are at work. You always have been at work. And you, in wonderful and mysterious ways, bring about your plans and purposes. And the amazing thing is, is that you choose to invite us in to be part of that process, part of what you're doing. So thank you that we can all be a part of what you're doing at TCC. And Lord, we are people who are willing to go wherever you want us to go. And so lead us and guide us. Father, I pray especially for those this morning that might look over the history of their own lives And maybe what they see is a lot of runes, a lot of brokenness, a lot of hardship, a lot of pain. And I pray, Father, that they would see that none of that is wasted, that you have plans and purposes even for the the great pain that we might be experiencing in our lives even right now. And so I pray, Father, that we might grow in our trust of you just to know that you are a faithful God, And we can give our lives to you like wholeheartedly, unreservedly and trust you to know that you will do great and amazing things in our lives. We may not be called to rebuild a wall, but you may call us to get down on our hands and knees in the nursery or to cut food and brunch or to, to, to invite our neighbor to Easter service to shovel their snow, to cut their grass.
God, whatever it is that you call us to, may we see that you have called us to first and foremost serve you. And you so, we so often have the privilege of doing that by serving others. In Jesus' name we pray.